I'm Steve Pruitt, and I have the privilege this morning of bringing God's Word to you. Uh, Aaron and the elders are off. There was a wedding this weekend, so it's not really a day off for Aaron, but um, I'm delighted to give him some, some variety and get him out of the cycle of adrenaline and that whole thing from preaching. Uh, this morning, it will be helpful to you if you follow along in your Bibles or in the YouVersion app. Uh, if you have that, you can just open the app, click down in the lower right on more, and then events, and then the, the church stream will come up. And there's going to be a lot of verses today, and that will help you to um, to keep up. That way, we'll also be projecting them on the screen, and uh, you can do that. So if you have your Bibles with you, that is uh, wonderful, too, because we'll be landing in Philippians chapter 2 for a good bit of the time, and it'll be good for you to actually look at what we're uh, talking about there. There's also Bibles in the seat racks in front of you, and if you didn't bring one, uh, you can either borrow one. If you don't have one, take it with you. We'd be glad to have you be able to use that. <clears throat> There's also notes at the tables, and the verses are on the notes, and a synopsis of the message and all of that. And if you forgot to get one when you came in, you can just get up now or whenever. It won't bother me at all to just grab the notes there at these tables and in the back. So we're in a series, and we're in week nine of the series called Never Read a Bible Verse. And uh, at first, I didn't like that topic. Um, I don't know if you reacted to it. But what is really meant by that is more like never read it without considering the context. Don't just pull it out and build something off of it without really looking at it. And this is important because when we take verses out of context, we tend to believe things that God has never said to us. We tend to claim promises that he hasn't made to us. We tend to give bad advice and make bad decisions, and so often we tend to spread some very bad teaching. So it's important. So the purpose of this series is to encourage us to make sure that as much as possible, we're able to take verses and chapters to mean what God originally meant them to say, what the original authors were really getting at. Um, and not to read into them a meaning they were never meant to have. You don't have to be a Hebrew or Greek scholar to do this. It's easy to get that impression. But you do have to use proper and sound ways of interpretation if you want to come up with a proper interpretation and also sound thinking. You need to learn how to do that. So before we get into our passage today, I want to talk about some tools that we can use to learn how to read and understand the Bible in context. 
We're going to talk about it in general. We'll go over some basics of interpretation, and then we'll walk through our passage, and we'll try to apply those basics to get a little bit of practice doing that. We're going to keep it fairly simple, but uh, you're still going to have to stay engaged to track with me as we get into the passage, so no naps for about the next half hour or so, okay? Some people come to church for a good nap. Um, Not today. As we speak of the basics today, we're going to talk about three things to remember as you read your Bible. The big picture, how words work, and the context. And we'll cycle back through those. And of course, there is some overlap in each of these because they all have to do with reading and interpreting in context. They really do. But I want to walk us through these principles one at a time to give you uh, some tools that we use to understand our Bibles in context. And then uh, we're going to walk through, as I said, our passage for today, which is in Philippians 2. First, as we read, we always want to remember the big picture. This means that when we look at any book or chapter or verse or word in the Bible, we want to make sure that we look at it in light of the main story of the Bible, which speaks of God's character, it speaks of his ways, and it speaks of his plan for redemption. As we get to know him through the Old Testament and we understand his overall plan of salvation for us, for the human race, and his chosen way of saving us, if we get that through the big story, we have a much better basis for understanding the particular parts of the Bible that we come across. Um, In the big picture, we learn that God never acts in a way that contradicts his character. Never. We learn that he keeps his promises. And we learn about his purpose for mankind and his purpose in everything that he says and does, his overall purposes. As you remember the big picture, you can then ask yourself, does my initial understanding of this passage I'm in today fit with what I know to be true about God's character, his ways, and his plan of salvation? That's a question you can ask. If you come across a verse and you look at it and you have this first reaction and something is like, wait a second, that's a good question to ask. How does it fit in the big picture? Without this foundation of having the big picture and keeping it in mind, you'll find yourself easily confused and sidetracked in your walk and puzzling passages will cause you to doubt God's goodness and his care for you. It will happen. If you want to get better at the big picture, you can start by reading through your whole Bible. You can also listen 
to teaching on the subject, uh, even on the, word, the church website, like Aaron's series on the greatest story ever retold, or his series on didn't see that coming, or the Element U sessions we did a couple of years ago uh, covering the unfolding mystery of redemption. And there are lots of other resources out there that can help you to get the big picture. And if you want some help with that, come see me. I would love to, uh, to get you uh, fluent in the big picture. The second principle of interpretation is to remember how words work. Um, this sounds simple, but it's amazing how often people forget this. In any language, a single word can have several meanings depending on where it appears. For example, like uh, in English, the word nailed. A nail can be a fastener that you pound into something, or it can be something on the end of your fingers or toes. But when I say, I nailed it, it could mean that I pounded a nail in, or even that I did well on a test, or I accomplished something with excellence. The word changes according to the conversation that's being had. The word cleave is another one. To cleave can mean to cut something apart, but it can also mean to stick together, all depending on the context. The word right is another one, R-I-G-H-T, right. I can be saying, you were right. But if I say, make a right at the light, the word completely changes its meaning. I can also say the pursuit of happiness is a basic human right. And that's a whole other thing. The word buckle is another one. It's often something found on a belt or as a verb. Buckle means to fasten a clasp. When we say something is buckled, we usually mean it's secure and held together. But the word buckle can also mean to collapse, as in under a heavy load. There are tons of other examples. I had a whole bunch of them. But um, I think you get the picture. Word meanings tend to change according to the context in which they appear. They do not stay the same. It's just how words work. So you can't just come up with a single definition of a word and then apply that definition every time you see it in your Bible. It's a, actually a serious linguistic error. Languages just don't work like that. Some Bible teachers say that the first appearance of a word in the Bible should define it, that that's the most significant one. But that gets you into all kinds of trouble. Again, language doesn't work that way. Some Bible scholars make the mistake of assembling a broad definition of a word by taking 
examples and, and, and parts of its meaning from several places, and they come up with this composite, and then they apply that uh, combined definition everywhere they see it in the Bible. They do this with the word gospel, with the words elect and chosen, and even the words saved and salvation, which we're going to look at a little bit in Philippians 2. This is a huge mistake. You do not want to do that. It ends up confusing at least the gospel message, if not a whole lot of other stuff. So we have to remember how words work. Their definition can change radically depending on the conversation, the context, which leads us to the third thing to remember, and that is to remember the context. That is, take a close look when you read something at the immediate surrounding verses, phrases, paragraphs, and chapters so that you can see the subject or the purpose of that particular conversation. It also takes a, includes taking a look at parallel passages in other books of the Bible where there's a clear teaching on that particular subject. You never want to build a doctrine on a verse that is ambiguous. A verse that's hard to understand what the meaning is. Never build a doctrine on that. For doing that, for building a doctrine, you go to the clear passages where God is on the subject and explains it clearly. Um, and not just where the same word appears. Don't make that mistake that you just go to your concordance and you find the same word and you assume that it's the same subject and that that context defines yours. It doesn't work that way. You go to a, the clear passages where the it's the same subject and it is clear. I know that sounds like a lot of work, but in order to know the meaning of words and sentences, you have to know what the author's talking about. You get there by asking the who, what, when, where, why questions. Where does it appear? In the Old Testament or the New? What's the occasion? To whom is it written? Why was it written? Sometimes the author will tell you that. When was it written? Was it written before the law was given? Was it written while Israel was under the law? Or was it written after the law was fulfilled by Jesus and replaced by the new covenant? Very important that you know when it was written. And also, super important, what is the immediate subject the author's talking about? Don't just pull it out and turn it into your own little topic. Find out what the author is talking about. Many Bibles, especially study Bibles, can help with these things where they have an introduction before you get into the text. Um, some online commentaries are really good at this too. They're helpful, like the Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub, Bible.org, Bible Gateway, and even the Version has some helpful overviews that um, will help you in determining context. So those are the three things to remember. 
the big picture, how words work, and the context. Now, you won't always consider these in this order, but if you have these three things in your mind, you start pulling them up, and it doesn't necessarily matter which order you do them in as long as you consider all three. Even if you don't have other helps, it's an amazing Bible tool just to have that. Uh, you may even want to, when you're uh, looking at the notes, to write those things down in the back of your Bible so that when you're puzzled, you go there and you ask those questions. Simple tool, but really effective. So after saying all of that, I want us to look at our passage for today. It's a passage that has caused a good bit of confusion. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to read it from the English standard, the ESV. How about if we stand together as I read this? Just in case you had dozed off, this is your... Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's it. You may be seated. The part of the verse that I want to focus on today, in case it didn't uh, catch your eye, is where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to do that because that's a pretty scary statement. So let's see if we can take a look at this one using some of the tools here, using these three tools. Um, but before I get to that, first of all, I, I want you to, uh, I, I, you should probably know that there are three ways that the word salvation has been interpreted in this passage. Uh, the first one is that it's about eternal salvation and it's something that you have to secure by your works. Many have used this passage to show that you're not saved by grace alone, but also by your works. We would have to change that song earlier to your grace and my works is enough. Um, but that can shake you a bit. After all, it does say, work out your own salvation. The Good News translation seems to reflect this same interpretation when it says, keep on working with fear and trembling to complete your salvation. Yeah. That'll get you shaken in your boots. The second interpretation says that this is eternal salvation and it's something you work out after God works it in. It would say that God first works salvation for you and into you and then you work it out. It says you can't earn your salvation but you show the work of salvation in you by living your life in a way that reflects that. Which, of course, is a true statement. We do that, and we should do that. For many years, I thought that this was the best way to interpret this passage, because at least it didn't 
contradict the gospel of grace. God works it into me. He does the salvation, and then I work it out. But it still seemed a little bit shaky to me. It did, I could not settle with it, in part because of how Paul says, do this with fear and trembling. It's like, if I am genuinely confident that Jesus paid the debt of my sin, I should be trusting, not fearing and trembling. Does that mean that we should fear losing our salvation or that we don't quite have it down yet or it won't be dialed in completely until the end of our life when we've persevered for the whole time or whatever? Um, in my early Christian walk, I had plenty of internal fear and trembling going on because of a boatload of guilt from my past sins that I just kept wondering if I needed to go back and fix all of those because I still got this crazy debt of sin. And, and uh, I, for the longest time, years in fact, I wondered if I was really saved, if my faith was the kind that was pure enough and focused enough to actually save me. And because I wasn't sure of that, I would go around and do all kinds of stuff to make sure that I worked out my salvation. In fact, I became kind of a Pharisee. In fact, somebody called me a Pharisee once. I was shocked, but he was right. Um, and then coming to a verse like this wasn't helping me at all because I was basing my sense of security on my performance, on my works. It wasn't until many years later that I was actually teaching through the book of Philippians, and that's where you really do have to dig in. If you're going to try to pass something on to somebody, you ought to, you know, you ought to know it. And I saw that there really could be a third way to interpret the passage. And this interpretation says that this salvation that is being talked about here is actually deliverance from something other than eternal condemnation. And we'll talk about that as we get going. So how do you pick which interpretation to use? I think we do it by applying the principles to the passage. And the first one is to remember the big picture. We have to ask, does our interpretation of this passage contradicts God, contradict God's overall plan of salvation? If we hold a high view of scripture, which says that God doesn't contradict himself and that it is a unified field of truth and that it is God-breathed, then we can't see how this could be teaching a faith plus works theology. The main story of the Bible shows us from the very beginning that we can't do works to save ourselves eternally. We can't work for our eternal salvation or even contribute to it at all. That's even one of the first things that somebody has to understand before they can even put their trust in Christ in the right way. They have to know that they are toast that they are under his condemnation and his judgment, and that, and they are helpless to do anything about it, then they put their trust in somebody who has done the work for them. It has to be that way. The main reason that God gave 
Israel, the Old Testament laws was not to show them the way that they could be eternally saved, but more to show them, Galatians tells us, that they absolutely can't save themselves. The law's standards were so high that everybody fell short, and everybody who wanted to boast about their righteousness, their mouth was stopped, and they became guilty before God. That was the law. It was given to show us that we can't work out our own salvation. We always fall short. You always need a Savior. So, and the reason we always need a Savior, savior, back to the principle, works don't work for salvation. They have their benefits, but not for eternal salvation. And the New Testament then continues that thought um, with some very clear teaching. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, To him who does not work, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourself, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Very clear teaching. This is going to the clear parallel passages on the subject. In John 5.24, Jesus says, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation, but has already passed from death to life. Very clear. And since these and many other clear passages, I just had to pick a few for time's sake, um, give us the big picture that our eternal salvation is not by works, but only by God's grace through faith in Christ. We know that this passage in Philippians can't be saying that all of a sudden we need to work out our own eternal salvation. It would contradict what the Bible teaches so clearly. So at this point, then we need to do more digging. Let's look at the second principle. Look at it with the second principle. Remember how words work. So the word salvation, the word saved. In English, the word saved can have all kinds of meanings. You can save a drowning person. A doctor can save a patient. You can save money in a bank. Somebody can save your bacon. You can save yourself a lot of heartache by not marrying Mr. Wrong. There's a lot of ways that you can interpret it. So whenever you see the words save, saved, salvation in the Bible, you have to look at the context and see what the conversation is that is going on. What kind of saving or salvation is being talked about. You can't take your preconceived idea that every time the word salvation is mentioned, it has to do with your eternity. You have to do that. So the Greek verb for salvation is usually this word sozo, and the noun is soteria. And you can, you can find that in some of the helps, even if you don't know Greek. But just like in English, these Greek words can have all kinds of different meanings depending on where they show up. The basic idea is to be saved, spared, preserved, delivered, or rescued from someone or something. 
pretty broad scope that the word can have. The words are sometimes used to um, describe our past salvation, eternal salvation from the penalty of sin. Like where Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 that we looked at, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's eternal salvation. He also writes in Titus 3.5 how God saved us. It says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not works, his mercy. These are past tense, and they deal with the eternal salvation that Jesus bought for us at the cross. When you put your trust in him, this salvation is yours forever, apart from from works. Very clear. So sometimes, though, the word salvation has to do with our present situation, our present salvation from the power of sin over us or salvation from falling into deception and error. It's very contemporary, very now. An example of that is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul's talking to young Timothy about the perils of ministry. And people are being deceived by demons. In verse 16, he says to young Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, there, being saved is not eternal salvation. It's being saved from falling into error and causing others to fall into error, not being saved eternally at all. Uh, Sometimes the word salvation is talking about our future salvation, the day when we're finally saved from the very presence of sin and we're in the presence of God forever. Sometimes we call that our glorification. In Romans 13, 11, check this out. Paul uses the word salvation to encourage the Romans when he says, and do this, uh, Romans 13, 11, do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Wow. Well, it was not that they weren't quite eternally saved yet, but like, and, and still in eternal jeopardy. The salvation he's talking about here is our future salvation when Jesus comes back for those who have trusted in him and we are finally delivered from the very presence of sin. Not eternal, but future. Then there are also times in the Bible, and you may not be aware of these, where the word saved just means deliverance from some kind of uh, current situation or peril. Luke 1 talks about salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And it has nothing to do with our salvation from sin at all. In his letter, this same letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 19, Paul uses the word salvation to talk about being delivered from prison. In Acts 27, Paul encourages the men on the boat to eat and save themselves from starvation, not 
from eternal condemnation. So the word has these different meanings. And since there are so many possibilities for definitions, the passage has to determine how the word should be defined. Uh, One Bible teacher that I had years ago said, context with a capital K, context is king. And that's what you have to do here. You have to let the passage define how it should be considered, how it should be defined. That's just the way that, that words work. Now, the passage. Salvation in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It gives us some background, hopefully, as how the word salvation might be interpreted in this passage where it says, work out your own salvation. Because we know the big picture, we know he can't be telling the Philippians that their past salvation from eternal condemnation is up to them to finally nail down to work out. It would contradict his clear teaching elsewhere and the main story of the Bible. As you look closer in the book, and I encourage you to do so, you see that Paul is not talking about their future or their past, but their present shining as lights in a dark world. So that is a clue. That's his topic. That's a clue Uh, to us that it has to do with a present situation that's going on right then and there with the Philippian congregation. And that's where we want to go next. Let's take a look at this using that third principle, remembering the context. As we look for the context in Philippians 2, we have to ask, what is it that needs to be worked out here? We don't have time to read the whole book, so let me just give you a little bit of a synopsis of it. In this letter, Paul is calling the Philippians as a group to exercise a humble unity with each other. They were having a conflict in their church that was disrupting things, and it seems to be that it was centered on two women, Euodia and Syntyche. He speaks in general to the whole group and talks to them about how you need to have unity, you need to humble yourselves like Jesus humbled himself and went from being equal to God all the way to the cross. So you have the same mindset. It's all about this humble unity. Jesus humbled himself to restore our unity to God. And Paul, he would love to be there. But he's in prison and he can't be there. He's, uh, he would love to help them resolve this destructive situation that's going on. Um, here, chapter 4, he actually calls out these two women. I kind of skipped this. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He calls them all to humble themselves and then he calls these two to humble themselves and calls on the leaders to help them with this situation. He'd love to be there to help them out, but he's saying, you're going to have to work out your own deliverance from this situation because I can't be there to help you. That is all he's saying. 
that this is going to be on you guys now, and you can do it, but do it with fear and trembling. He's saying, I want you to work it out, and um, it's because God himself is at work in you, pushing you in this very direction, giving you everything that you need to do it. He's in, working in you to both will to do it and to do his good pleasure. He's working several things into you, the book says. Just before these, this verse, he says, you've been given encouragement from being united with Christ. You all have the same comfort from his love. You all have the same fellowship and partnership with the Spirit of God. And you've all been shown the same tenderness and compassion. All these things God has worked into you, given you now. It's time to cooperate with what God is doing in you and let it be worked out through you. Paul is saying to the Philippians, work at delivering, delivering yourselves out of this division and strife that is plaguing your church because that's what God is trying to do in you. And he says, do it with fear and trembling. Now, I don't think he means do it Shaking in your boots because you fear God's eternal judgment. Shaking in your boots because God is just waiting to squash you if you don't do it. I think he means do it even though it might be difficult. Even though you feel that you're unqualified. Even if you're shaking in your boots because you don't feel like you can pull it off and you don't know how it's going to work. You ever feel that way when you have to confront somebody? There's a lot of fear and trembling going on. And this is what he's saying. Do it. Knowing, though, what is at stake because you are dimming your lights in the world when you don't deal with this stuff. It is a serious matter. There are people out there in the world who need to see the light through your love for one another and your unity with each other. It's an Odd thing to see humans act like that. And this is the very thing that God is trying to shine to draw people to himself. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God wants our love for one another and our unity to be used as a light to draw people to himself. So even though <clears throat> violating this is not going to mess with our eternal security, could actually have an impact on somebody else's relationship to God because it could turn them off and just say, why should I want that? Christians are no different than anybody else. So their handling, even though the eternal salvation wasn't at stake, their handling of this internal situation might make a difference in someone else's life. And that really is something to take seriously and I think that would shake me a, a bit but it also causes me to relax a little bit when I know that this is what it's talking about that my eternal salvation is not up to me because in two minutes I would blow it every five minutes I'd be out again and if you were really keeping tabs on your holiness level. You'd be there as well. So that's good. Since I'm 
secure in my relationship with God because of his work for me, because of Jesus' work for me and his grace and his mercy, I am also freed up to love my neighbor and maintain unity with other people. So as we wrap up, which I really got to do, this to me is the most accurate way to look at the passage, and we get there by using those solid principles of interpretation. You don't have to agree with me, but I hope you'll study it out and use the principles and find out if that is so. Philippians is a God-inspired, masterful work that brings a lot of joy as you work through it and you start to understand it. It is just simply amazing. But as you do study it on your own, or as you study any passage that is confusing, make sure to remember the big picture, how words work, and the context. That can keep you from slipping into bad thinking, and teaching and actions. And it will help you to see more clearly the amazing message that this letter and others have for believers everywhere. We're going to leave it there this morning. going to call the band to come on up. And as they come up now to lead us in worship, um, we're going to share communion together. And uh, there is uh, bread and juice and wine at the tables here uh, and at the back. And there's even a uh, gluten-free option if you uh, prefer that, that will be at the, the back table. But before you take communion, maybe it would be a good time for you even right now to open to Philippians chapter 2. And read the first 11 verses, which form the background for verse 12 and 13. And look at the example of Christ in this. He, even though he was God, humbled himself, became a human being who needed baths and and got uncomfortable and sore and all that. And then he suffered and went all the way to death on the cross. And he did this to buy your eternal pardon and bring you into unity with God. So as we take the bread, then read that passage if you can. And uh, then as you take the bread, be reminded that his body was placed between you and the wrath of God. And that that work that he did, stepping into your sinner's place, resulted in your salvation. And as we take the juice, remember the price of our redemption. It was the precious blood of Christ that bought your pardon. And without the shedding of his blood, there would be no eternal salvation for us. We would be lost. And uh, so now that his blood is shed, we know that the price has been paid. And all we do is place our confidence in the work that he's done. Think about those things as we do communion. Also, um, there isn't, if you're new, you may have noticed there wasn't an offering uh, time. There are boxes at the exits that if you've come prepared to give,
feel free to do that. that I appreciate about this church that they want your giving to be a response to what God has done and not something that you do out of guilt or out of, you know, needing other people to see you do it or anything like that, but just your own response of thanks to God. I like that. So let's pray together and then we'll close. Lord, we're so thankful that it's not up to us to work out our eternal salvation. We would mess it up daily and we know it would never happen. But because your son, Jesus, didn't falter even once, he was able to pay fully for our sins, fully buy our pardon and bring us back to unity with our creator who loves us. Help us to mirror to the world that same kind of love and compassion and help our lives to shine brightly, not pointing to ourselves, but to our Savior who really is the light of the world. In his name we pray, amen.